The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Strategies to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. If you've been wondering what the new upcoming changes are going to be in the world of tech and how they're going to affect you, your business, your livelihood, and everything around you, then today's a great day for you to pay attention because Randy Gage is going to bring light to all of this. Randy, thank you very much for joining us. How are you, man? Hey, Joel. Great to be on with you. Hey, you know, um, so listen, so a couple of weeks ago, we were together in Orlando at a conference. And, and you did a few-minute presentation on some of the, the problems that are happening in tech and some of the unintended consequences of some of the tech uh, evolution, revolution. And I just thought it was fascinating. I love what you had to say about channel conflict and so forth. So I wanted to share that with some of our uh, listeners, mostly business people, uh, you know, executive-type people. Um, what are some of your big thoughts? And then we'll kind of dive into some of these things and just – kind of share some thoughts. Well, everybody knows that this internet thing, this internet fad is not gonna blow over. They've figured that out, but I don't think people have really come to grips with how disruptive the internet will be. They think, okay, so uh, Uber disrupted the taxis. Okay, I get that. Amazon disrupted the bookstore, I get that. But I don't have to worry about that because my business is different. We're so unique. We're so exclusive. We're such a special thing that none of this is going to impact us. And they're crazy because every business in the world is going to be impacted. From the little neighborhood beauty salon to the uh, restaurant, to the dog groomers and the dog walkers and the IBMs and the AT&Ts and the Netflix and Time Warner and everybody in between. Um, because it's always going to be the case and, and the channel conflict that we were talking about in Orlando, that's where the big issue is. is um, we have so many people who make a living now selling on Amazon, let's say. They figured out, okay, I've got this great product. I can get it made in China. I can sell it on Amazon. They're doing the warehouse. AWS is handling the tech. Um, but if the market is really lucrative, Amazon's going to say, well, man, we are really selling a lot of these curry-flavored widgets. So I think we need to just manufacture our own. 
curry flavored widgets. And they're going to do that. And with Whole Foods, with the new supermarket they're going to open, uh, you know, it's going to get to a point where they say, well, you know, look at all this Coke and Pepsi we're selling. But if we were selling Bezos Cola, you know, we're going to make 20% more on every can and bottle we sell. All right. So here, so let's, so let's, um, what's different now, because, you know, this has been happening for a long time. I mean, supermarkets have their secondary brand. Uh, Costco has its Kirkland secondary brand. And so, uh, you know, companies have been doing this sort of thing. But what seems to me is what's different is that Amazon actually controls all the customers. Right. And, and so you have CVS who got, you know, NyQuil to make a, a, a CVS version of NyQuil. And you've got Publix and Safeway who got um, whatever to, you know, a bear aspirin to make a, gener- a, a supermarket brand version of their aspirin. And they thought they were being clever, but now they're going to have the same thing done to them. <laughs> right. <laughs> So now the goose is the gander, right? Because it's going to go the other way around, the people doing that. And the internet is, is the thing that changes everything because we all make less money because there's an internet, right? Before the internet, you were going to make $7,000 when you sold a new car. That was your margin. Now it might be $1,500. Why? Because anybody can get on their phone and they can research and they know how much you make on an upsell on the low jack and how much you make an upsell on the tire maintenance package and how much you make on the uh, rally stripes and they're educated, right? So all of the margins have shrunk and now we have the channel conflict. So you're a car dealer. You say, well, you know, the phones and mobile apps and the internet and you know, our profit margins going down, but, but cars.com is going to sell me leads. These are people who want to buy cars. So now you go to cars.com and you start getting leads for all your salesmen. But what's the point when cars.com says, well, what do we need these dealerships for? We can just send these customers direct to Chrysler and direct to Ford. Just like Zillow, all of the real estate agents are getting the leads from Zillow. So I was mentioning this in Orlando, right? Right. So Brian, Brian Walther, who, who was with us there, he wrote me, you know, a week later, you know, my, my daughter works for Zillow. And I told her what you were saying about what Zillow is going to do. And here's what, and they're doing it right now. Here's the example, right? I'm like, of course. Well, listen, so just wait a second. So uh, cars.com can send them directly to Chrysler and they can cut out the intermediary. And actually, when you right. talk about the history of the internet, you know, the, the first thing to go were the, were the brokers. They were the intermediaries. So the travel agents and some of the intermediaries, those were the first people to go. And then it kind of started rippling into some of these other things. And now we're talking about supermarkets, uh, car dealerships. Uh, supermarkets, real 7-Eleven, department stores, drug stores, all of it. They're right. all so, going to get screwed. Just, but just for background and context for listeners who don't have all the background. So we start with... Uh, brokerage uh, type of businesses. And now we're talking about even uh, another layer of these brokerages. So what's the deal? I mean, it's pretty clear what happens with cars.com, but what's going to happen with Zillow? Like what, how is Zillow going to migrate? They're building, they're building the brand in the space, the brand that says, Hey, when you want to buy or sell a home, we're the experts who's going to do it. 
we have the quickest, easiest, most efficient, most cost-effective way of doing that. So they're, and so now the agents are saying, well, this is great. I'm getting 15 leads a week from Zillow and, you know, two of them buy houses and, you know, I'm only paying this percent, but Zillow doesn't need you. At some point, they're just going to have enough people who list their home direct to Zillow and buy their homes direct from they Zillow. Still need, they still need feet on the street. I mean, they still need no, people. Absolutely not. not. Why? People are buying a house today. People, I have a friend, I was just talking to him yesterday. He just bought two condos on his smartphone. He's an investor. It's not with Zillow. It's with another company that does investment properties. And they, he gets on his phone and they go in the unit. They do a whole film 360. They showed him the whole unit. Here's the tax deed. Here's the, you know, everything. And he invested and bought two condos on his phone. And no real estate agent was involved in that transaction. Really? Wow. Yeah. And that's going to happen in everything because now, the, and the big dynamic that I was trying to mention to our, our mastermind group in Orlando was the voice is the dynamic now because when you go to Amazon now and you search soda, you get Coke, Pepsi, Diet Pepsi, Mountain Dew, you know, house brand, this, that. But when you do voice, it's not going to give you 10 options. You're going to say, uh, I want soda. And it's going to say, well, we have Bezos Cola is our favorite. You know, our special of the day is Bezos Cola. Now, sure, people will still say, well, no, I, I want Coke or I want Pepsi. But there's, that's one more step. That's one more little bit of friction. And that's one more market share piece. because. Now, if you search on Google, you're going to get the top five search results, the top three or four ads, right? If you search on Amazon, eBay, any site, you're going to, but with voice, you're going to get one selection to begin with because it's voice. There is no screen and that changes everything. So let's, let's talk about a couple things. One, um, I want to understand about the future of voice because I know you're studying this uh, carefully, but the second question is, what are companies like Coke and Pepsi, who are fierce rivals, what are they doing for this invisible brand new competitor that they can't even see but know is coming? What are they doing to protect their brands? They're sticking their head in the sand and saying, oh, this will never impact us because we're fucking Coke. You mean just like Blockbuster did and... Everybody just exactly. Like, I mean, think <laughs> of Blockbuster. This was billions of dollars, a multi-billion dollar company that no, I mean, well, there was one store in Alaska and I think that closed about three months ago. So it literally disappeared from the face of the earth because you don't need a video store when you have Netflix. You know, uh, you know it's funny. I, I had my deal, you know, I was involved with the Los Angeles Times and I brought in this technology and they, you know, they had put a bunch of money in my company. And one of the things that I told them was, and this was in the 90s, you know, I said to them, because they were very concerned about the distribution of, uh, of newspapers and they were going to lose their newspapers. I said, you know, there was this little company called Earthlink. I said, why don't you buy this little company? This would be a perfect company because then they could distribute the, uh, the information and you would own the distribution. So right now, because what the newspaper business is really about, it's really about controlling distribution. That's the main thing that they control. So they produce the information and then they control the distribution of it through their, uh, used to be paper boys and now whatever they are, however they get newspapers out. 
And, and they really didn't see the whole concept of, of controlling a different kind of distribution. It's not that different from what you're talking about. And it's these companies have been resistant for a long time. Need, we don't need newspapers anymore. Okay, I get up, I'm early. I'm going to the gym at 5.30 in the morning. I walk down to the fifth floor where the gym is and I walk by 10 apartments uh, between the fire exit and the gym. There's not a newspaper on one of those. Not in anymore. Place, yeah. In my place in San Diego, there's one, one apartment on my floor that gets the LA, uh, the LA newspaper, not the San Diego one. They get the LA one. Yeah. People right next to me, right? They're the only one on that floor, right? There was, if we would have done that six years ago, there'd be eight people, 10 people on that floor. And there's 22 floors in my building. And, the, and do the math on, well, so, so, so those and, executives know. at those companies had their head in the sand. They missed the opportunity. And you're yeah. saying now Coke and Pepsi's head in the sand, and they're missing the opportunity because five years from now when we look backwards and Boyce has exploded and the whole thing has happened, which is imminent because one of the most productive companies on the planet controls it, uh, and, and Google's not far behind them. So these giant companies are, you know, they're poised to make this happen. And you're telling us that their head is in the sand? Yes, because they're, they're also locked in a rock and a hard place because right now, whatever percent, let's say it's 85% of Coke sales are done in supermarkets. So they're not going to tell the super, and well, no, that's not true. Supermarkets and online grocers, right? So they're not going to tell the supermarkets and online grocers, listen, we know you're going to try to screw us two years from now. So we're just taking our Coke out of your your channel right now because there's not they don't have a way to sell it so they say well shit we're doing you know four billion dollars a year in amazon and we're doing you know eight billion dollars a year in the supermarkets in the u.s we can't just throw that business away so we need to stay here and keep them happy but we got to figure they're going to try and cut our throat down the road that's the channel conflict. Okay, right. I, I, I get that channel conflict. So how do companies like Coke and Pepsi, because this is a great example, how do those companies deal with this problem? I mean, it seems to me like it's probably got to be through some kind of an acquisition, strategic acquisition. So what do they have to do to protect themselves? Well, the best thing they can do, and they're actually very good at this, Coke and Pepsi and you know Budweiser, some of these brands, the biggest thing you could do is build your brand awareness and your brand loyalty so that because and that's what I was telling our group in Orlando, right? Is that it's all about personal branding. Now, if you're, if you are that car dealer, you know, you're that guy or gal who works at the car lot, you better have an Instagram account. You better have a YouTube channel. You better be doing content every week and you're in, in Dubuque, Iowa, where everybody knows that, uh, Nancy is the best car salesperson in Dubuque and she takes such good care of her customers. And if you're buying a car, you want to go to Nancy because she does a, a YouTube show every Friday on how to save money on car maintenance and how to get the best deal when you buy a car. And, and she's building her expertise, her brand as a resource for the customer. You know, right? I, I think that most people really probably don't have any idea what you're talking about here. And the concept of personal brand is that People, if, if we're going to have this problem with cars.com and people are going to go direct to Chrysler and we're going to have this problem with uh, real estate agents don't need to go, uh, you know, they can go straight to Zillow, that if you are one of these kinds of people, 
that you better have a following and a tribe that's loyal to you, people that want to deal with you because the need for you is evaporating and you better have that loyal group of people. That's what you're talking about by personal branding, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So what are some of the ways that these people can build their personal brand? Is it writing books, starting podcasts? I mean, what are the things they can do? All of the above. In other words, what you want to do is you need to position yourself as the definitive expert in your space. You need to position yourself as, <coughs> excuse me, a helpful resource to the clients, to the customers, to the public. You know, what's, ama you know what's amazing about this is that we talk about expert marketing. I talk about expert marketing all the time. Money follows expertise. All the, you know, I have all my little stuff. We all have our things. But now it's talking about, we're not talking about real experts like professional people. We're talking about people that sell cars and people that, uh, you know, are selling, uh, selling anything. Whatever they're doing, they need to position themselves as, as real experts. I mean, really elevating themselves and building their tribe, just like, uh, like thought leaders. I mean, just like anybody. I mean, they really need to be in the same bucket. Yeah, I mean, there's people who do home jars of tomatoes or home canning or whatever you call that, right? And they have a YouTube channel or a Pinterest page or a Instagram account. And they have 40,000 people who follow them, right? And they've built a brand in some tiny little unique niche that nobody would even think about. But they have a wonderful life because they make $150,000 a year talking about making marmalade jam or $150,000 a year talking about how to new macrame designs or whatever. They've built a personal brand. It's unbelievable. So, which is, yeah, but it's so awesome. even if a big store, a big chain opens up, somebody that's going to compete with them, if they've built that brand awareness and that connect, you know, the, the bottom line is this, is you have to be direct to the customer. You can't have an intermediary between you and the customer. And that's what, you know, I was trying to tell everybody in Orlando with our mastermind there is that, like in our case, you and I both speak professionally. Right. If there's a speaker's bureau, a speaker bureau is going to have channel conflict. And a speaker's bureau is one step between us and our client. So describe we how the conflict would work in that business. Where's the conflict? Well, because I know a lot of speakers bureaus. Well, there's two things. I know some speakers bureaus where the people who run the bureau also speak. So they have an inherent channel conflict because yes. they'd yes. rather book them than others. And then the other thing is like, I pay a 25% uh, bureau fee. That's what we pay. If you bring us a speech, we've got a 25% bureau fee. Well, there'd be some hungry speaker who's desperate for business and they tell the bureau, listen, if you book me, I'll give you 35% of the fee or 40% of the fee, right? That's just good marketing, you know, if you want to compete on price. Um, and now the bureau is saying, well, okay, the client is going to spend $10,000 for this speech. We can give it to this guy and make $2,500 or we can give it to that lady and make $4,000. So, you know, is there... Is their recommendation going to be influenced by that in any way? Very yeah. likely. But that's, but that's existed since the dawn of time. I mean, that's, that's not any different. That's not driven by the internet and any new tech. Right, but here's the difference is now I have a YouTube channel. I have a podcast. I have a website. 
I have a blog. I have thousands of followers on social media. So I have clients who are calling speakers bureaus and saying, do you book Randy Gage? Oh, I see. Gotcha. We want him to do the opening keynote for our sales convention this year. They just like Coca-Cola needs that people say, hey, I don't want to say her name because she's going to turn on, but we'll say, hey, Amazon Echo device, <laughs> I want to order Coke, right? Can't just say soda, can't say soda pop, can't say cola. You need them to say Coke. Otherwise, the first thing that's going to come up is not going to be you. And that's what everybody, like I say, you know, every business is impacted this with some way because there's, you know, established uh, industries which are worth billions and literally trillions of dollars that may not exist because when people can go direct to the product on this uh, high-speed computer, which they're carrying around in their pocket every day, and get the product, it's going to eliminate entire industries. So what you find out is that people aren't as loyal to these brands as the brands think. They really, exactly. they don't care what toothpaste, they don't really care what, uh, you know, mouthwash, they don't, all these products, uh, the companies have to get you to call it out by name. And yeah, and it's really about creating status or going to the lowest possible price because, and the people who are going to be the roadkill is everybody in the middle. Yeah, you know, I get that, that it's either go to the bottom on price or go to the top on quality and, and name recognition and, and tribe and brand. Uh, fascinating, fascinating observation. So this is really the future of marketing. The future of marketing is either identify yourself as an expert and get uh, identified that way or go straight to the bottom on price because the middle's getting washed out. Yeah, and if you go straight to the bottom on price, which is what everybody's going to try to do because it looks the easiest, how do you compete with Amazon? You can't. You can't. Even if you're Coca-Cola, even if you're Budweiser, even if you're Pepsi, if you say, hey, screw Amazon, we'll create our own delivery network. Amazon owns their own planes. They own their own trucks. They own their own warehouse. They've invested billions of dollars in automating those warehouses with robots. They're going to spend billions of dollars automating their delivery with drones and autonomous vehicles. Billions and billions of dollars. So you're not gonna get a lower cost of doing business than Amazon. It's gonna be impossible. At some point, you know, Jeff Bezos is, Bezos is gonna be the you know, supreme dictator, benevolent dictator of the world. <laughs> yeah, and, until the federal government comes in and breaks up the monopoly. Right. And, you know, the, I mean, that's, the that's where we're well, headed. Here's, here's, another, here's another interesting thing, and this is uh, you know, me thinking about the stock market valuations and things, kind of the investment banking side of all this, is that even if Amazon decides to take a loss, that the loss would not be as bad for Amazon as it would be for everybody else on the stock market because their multiples are so much higher than everybody else's. Yeah. Because they're perceived to have so much potential, whereas Coca-Cola and these other beverage companies, uh, they're probably perceived to have less because they're older, more mature companies, and there's not that much excitement. So the magnification of a loss at the level of, uh, if, if Coke and Amazon went to war, Amazon's going to win on that front too. Yeah, because... There was a, 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 a gift somebody made of 
the value of the top brands in the world over the last 10 years. Like, so it started off, it was, and I don't, don't quote me on these companies. I, I remember this. It, it was good. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So it starts with it's General Motors and Ford and IBM and uh, Hewlett Packard and, you know, all of the legacy brands. Right. And then down at the bottom is Apple and Google and Amazon. And they're all like number four million in the world. And then, you know, and over the course of 10 years and you look and all of a sudden, these companies in a decade have created more, they are worth more money than companies that have been around for a hundred years or 150 years that were multi-billion dollar companies in the top 10 brands in the world. And, and the specific reason for that is because the stock market looks at potential. And the yeah. potential of Amazon is fantastic. The potential of IBM is, uh, you know, hum, ho-hum. And that's the way the market looks at it. And that's how that, that's how that happens. So it's, yeah. it's a fascinating concept, what you bring up. Uh, and it's absolutely accurate. Yeah, and so it really, it doesn't matter if you're a real estate agent, if you're a financial advisor, if you're in direct selling, if you have a neighborhood store or business, you have a family business, you're a multi-billion dollar international conglomerate, it, you're still going to be affected. You still have to say, you know, the question I ask myself every month is, how would I disrupt my business? How would I, if I wanted to take me out of business, how would I do it, right? How could I get between Randy and his customers? And that's what everybody needs to be asking themselves. How would I disrupt myself? How can my, how will my industry be disrupted? And then once you kind of get an idea how your industry might be disrupted, you got to say, okay, how do I become the one who disrupts that? Because like the example you give about Amazon and they could lose money, you know, a guy comes to me, He's got a startup. It's a rideshare company. He's got a whole new thing, and he's going to take on Uber and Lyft. I'm like, are you out of your freaking mind? Do you know how? So I Google it. I think I think Uber was sitting on ten billion dollars cash in the bank. You know, they have a market value of whatever it is, but like ten billion cash. So. They could lose, this startup could come after them. And when they did this, city by city, where they just said, okay, we're going to open Miami. And we're going to lose money until we drive all the competitors out. And then when everybody is gone, we'll get the price we want to get. And the whole Uber model is really, and people don't know this, but in my opinion, I think their whole model is they're going to get rid of all the drivers because it doesn't make sense. It's not cost effective. Even with surge pricing, it's not cost effective to have drivers. So right now, it's great for all these drivers, but again, channel conflict. So the driver who thinks, I got a good gig here because Uber is sending me 50 trips a day. Well, when Uber has an autonomous car, they don't need you anymore. Well, you got to remember that uh, Uber is giving them 75% of the money. So if Uber could take the other 75% invested in capital assets like autonomous cars and then not have that variable expense of, of, a, of a driver. That's what they're going to do. Exactly. Listen, the, I, the, the handwriting's yeah. on the wall. I mean, I don't think there is anybody who disagrees. Anybody who pays attention can see this because those are the companies. Like this guy's coming. Oh, no, no. There will always be drivers. You know, Uber, well, that's not the Uber model. I'm like, you're out of your mind. The, the, look, the, these are uninformed people. 
I mean, people, we're talking to executives on this podcast. We're talking to people who make decisions that are looking forward in time, not the workers who are taking the gig money for uh, that, that they're given. I mean, we're but talking I about- think, I think you're overestimating um, people's awareness of this because everybody, they just all think that their industry, their business is so unique that it just doesn't affect them. They all have this confirmation bias. Yeah, that's uh, that it, it's human beings. So the truth is that we don't want to look in the mirror and see the truth, and that's just that's right, right or wrong. I mean, that's just the nature of human beings. I mean, we we don't like we don't like to be uncomfortable. We okay. So what's that ballpark behind you in that picture? That's the Los Angeles Coliseum. In okay, okay, so that's the LA Coliseum. Yeah. Um, let's say it was Dodger Stadium. The Dodgers are playing the Yankees in the World Series. Okay, there's a bang bang play at first base. Okay. Um, some Dodgers running down the line, the Yankee third baseman gets it, throws to first. It's a bang, bang play. It's on Fox. There's 20 million people watching. Every Yankee fan says that guy is out. Every Dodger fan says he was safe. (laughs) They're all watching the same exact game, right? (laughs) But we know Every Dodger fan is going to see it one way, and every Yankee fan is going to see it another way. They can't help it. It's confirmation bias. Yeah. So, because we don't want to say, oh, well, you know, the truth is, I think the throw beat him. I think he was out. No, we have too much emotional. We've been waiting. You know, if you're a Dodger fan, you've been waiting since 1984 or 88. man. Are you kidding? Okay. I've been to two World Series in a row the last uh, couple of years. <laughs> I'm, right? I'm dying. Hopefully we'll go again this year. All right. So, <laughs> you know, you've been waiting for that championship since the 80s. You can't help but be emotionally invested in that play at first base, right? And same thing. If you run um, a supermarket, you say people are always still going to want to go to the neighborhood market. We have butchers and they cut the meat right there and they're friendly with the people and we have a Starbucks uh, in the store now and they can get a coffee and they're not going to go to Amazon. They're always going to come to my supermarket. I don't believe that. Yeah. I believe- you know, I'll tell you something. Uh, interestingly enough, and, and people very close to me have all said the same thing. Oh, I would never want to put the local guy out of business. I care very much about local business. And I do too, by the way, I'm, I'm all about entrepreneurship. I love entrepreneurship and, and I care a lot about family businesses, but you ask the same people, you know, would you pay twice as much for a loaf of bread or for a hammer at the local, uh, you know, hardware store compared to going to uh, Home Depot? And then they stop and they think, well, uh, well, yeah, I really want that guy in business, but I don't want to pay twice as much, so I'll just go to Home Depot. And yeah. that when you when you really put people on the spot and you ask them. As much as they root for the little guy, the truth is they're really taking care of themselves. They're not really willing to do economically what they need to do to keep that little family business going. And so it's just a matter of time. Those little businesses are going away, which is really a shame. So what what do these little businesses need to do to survive? I mean, they don't need, they they don't lay down the the tent and just roll over. I mean, they got to be able to do something. What do they do? You got to be the one direct to the customer. You can't let anybody come between you and the customer. You know, all wealth to me, all wealth is created by one of two things. We add value or we solve problems. And ideally, we do both. We create some kind of a business model where we add value and we solve problems for the people who are our target market. 
And if you do that, they will stay with you. But if there's some way for somebody to get in the middle, right, that's where, you know, the example I, in my risk is the new safe book. I was looking at mobile apps early on. And because like right now, we, we're both professional speakers. So you probably have the Delta app, the American app, the United app, whatever airline yeah, you sure. fly, right? Like I do. Uh, and everybody does. And if you like Pizza Hut, you probably have the Pizza Hut app now. And if you like, you know, whatever, you've got the whatever app. But at some point, when somebody can disrupt you with a generic app, that now if I get an app that says, okay, we monitor all the airlines and we will tell you what percentage of that flight comes on time and what percentage is uh, late and how often they overbook and how many people they throw off the flight. And we're gonna give you the maintenance reports of the, the uh, uh, you know, Federal Aviation Administration on when they say they have sloppy maintenance. And uh, we're gonna tell you which uh, one can get you this seat and you don't have somebody in the middle seat. And, we, you know, and we'll show you which airport to go through and where that airport that will have that new um, toy that you desperately need to buy your daughter on the way home, you know, in the gift shop at the airport because you don't have time to go shopping at home and you didn't order it and it's her birthday and whatever. <laughs> if they can do that, then you're going to throw out the, the incumbent apps and you're going to go to the generic one because it, if it saves you, you know, the thing people don't understand about Uber and Airbnb and Amazon and these disruptors is, the reason they are able to disrupt is because they're better. It's a better value. Okay, I live in South Beach, right? We have a cab company here. It's the worst freaking cab company in the world. The drivers don't speak English. The cars are 12 years old. The air conditioner doesn't work. You call a cab in July, they send you a cab. It's 95 degrees outside. There's 98% relative humidity and the <laughs> AC doesn't work. So you say, now I got my nice dress on. I'm flying to a business meeting and I'm going to be so sweaty before I even get on the plane that I can't even land and do a meeting. It's like, you're telling me I can just go to my phone and get an Uber and they're going to have a nice brand new Chevy Suburban with air conditioner and it's GPS and it's going to be here in three minutes. It's a better model, right? So they only, you know, disruption only works because it's more efficient, it's cheaper, it's better value. Otherwise, it wouldn't disrupt. So literally yesterday I'm reading you know, Steven Spielberg is on the board of governors of the Academy Awards and he's on a campaign that Netflix movies should not be allowed to compete for best picture category. Oh my God, you gotta be kidding. No, this is a thing right now, happening right now. Because Roma almost won the picture of the year and Hollywood, the incumbents, which is the theater chains, they don't want Netflix winning a you know, movie of the year because then why would somebody go and pay $10 for a box of milk duds and $6 for a Coke that costs 11 cents of sugar, right? <laughs> you know, this is how movie theaters make money. So they say, we're going to, but it's the same as those. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what this is. It's, it's protectionism. 
Yes. And, you know, they're, uh, so you have two problems uh, that I can think of to, uh, to this whole disruption thing, the whole, all the new market activity. One is government regulation. So that's yeah. one form of protection. And then you have, uh, you know, the, the Steven Spielberg thing, what you're talking about, where Netflix doesn't count. And so they're trying to protect their, uh, their industry, their theaters, their infrastructure, their ecosystem. They're trying to protect all these things uh, using that mechanism. And, and ultimately, protectionism doesn't work. Eventually, people will break through. You know, the taxi cabs tried really, really hard to keep Uber out of uh, every single city, and it just doesn't work. Uh, at LaGuardia Airport, you got to take a bus to the place where you take the, uh, the Uber, and people were still taking the bus. I mean, they made it as – they threw as much rocks in the road as they yep. could, create as yep. much friction as yep. they could, yep. and people still take the Uber because they don't want to take the cabs. So right. it, it ultimately doesn't work, and, and the cities would be well right, – But the incumbents will always try. You know, one yeah. of the – I don't remember if it was my Risky book or the Mad Genius book. There was a company called Zenefits, which is out of Utah, I think. Oh, I'm, I, I know that company. Yeah. All right. So they were tra- they had local uh, representatives filing laws trying to get the company declared illegal. Right. Mm-hmm. Just like you know, you had the Paris drive. You know, the Uber drivers in Paris. They just took their cab. I mean, sorry, the cab drivers. They took their cabs. They parked them on the Champs Elysees and turned them off and just blocked all the traffic and say. You know, we're not, they were burning Uber cars. They were throwing <laughs> rocks at right? But ultimately, especially like Paris, because I go to Paris a lot. I mean, Paris is one of the most under-taxied, horrible taxi service cities in the world. So, of course, Uber is going to eat those guys for breakfast because it's a much better product. And the better product will ultimately win. So even if, because if you do get the, the incumbents who get this protection, just like they have all these taxi medallions. Miami's the most corrupt city in the world with the taxi medallion business, other than maybe Michael Cohen in New York was worse. I don't know, but it's probably <laughs> neck and neck, right? It's, it's just, it's a corrupt, flawed model. And so when something like Uber or Lyft or Sidecar comes out, even if the incumbents get the regulation for a while, at some point people say, well, you know, I'm not going to real. I'm not going to vote for that city council person again because they outlawed Uber in my town. You know, like uh, you know, I live in San Diego in the summer, and now they're they're trying to outlaw all the electric scooters, right, and the bike sharing ones. And you know, it's like, and if I see a city council member who's, then they'll never get my vote. I love those electric scooters. I live downtown in the East Village. I just. I don't drive anywhere. I just go out. I've got, there's a bird is there. Uh, and it's like three different scooters. I have all three of the apps on my phone. There's, you know, the scooters <laughs> and the bikes and whatever. And it's just perfect. You know, I love it. That's the future of the world. That's the future of saving the planet is why would I take my resources? Over? I mean, you get, you get one, one of those things and you need it for 10 minutes. You use it for 10 minutes. Why own it hundred percent of the time when you only need right. a fraction? Right. Or fractionalizing things. In, in 20 years from now, maybe less than 5% of the people will even own a car. In 10 years from now, maybe less than 30% of people will own a home, right? And in, in 20 years, 25 years, maybe less than 5% will own a home. Maybe less than one-tenth of 1% will own a car. Because the truth is, like people like me who collect cars and like sports cars, we probably have some of those. 
But even though I love sport cars, I still take my Lime scooter when I'm going anywhere in the East Village. See, it's hard, it's hard for me to... If I'm going down to South Beach, I'm not going to drive. I'm going to take Uber because I know there's nowhere to park in South Beach. Yeah, well, listen, and, and, and I'm with you on cars. I'd give up my car today. I mean, if I didn't live in a place like Los Angeles, I would, I would give up my car in a second. But a house is a little different because the majority of Americans, that's the majority of their wealth is the ownership of their home. So mark my words. I, what's that? Mark my words. Come back and look in 20 years. I, I just, I don't, I don't say, see it. It doesn't make sense to own a house. It's just not good for the planet. The money isn't there. I'd rather be, I don't want to be tied down. I like to travel. I want to spend summers here and winters there. Or I want to be able to transfer with my job and work in different cities. And I'm telling you, it's I, I, ownership. I'll tell you what I definitely over. see. I definitely see that young people do not value home ownership the same way that our generation uh, was taught to value home ownership. And I'm not saying that I don't agree that you're probably right, but the majority of all the wealth that people accumulate comes from wealth of their real estate, uh, which is mostly their home. And I don't know how people are going to uh, replace that if they don't own a home. I mean, I'm not sure what they're going to do. So it's hard for me to see that piece. Although I do get that young people don't value home ownership exactly like you're saying. Yeah. And let me tell you a secret. Old people die and they get well, replaced listen, with young people. That's, that's what enables change. <laughs> is that, you know, listen, a lot of the old values that, that, that exist won't be around for very much longer because they go away with the people that carry them. And Right. Um, every, you know, every time a generation dies off, there's a seismic shift in the culture and the behaviors. There just is. Yeah. Well, all you got to do is I look mean, at your children. You're you can old enough. You're like me. I mean, do you remember the scandal of Elvis Presley? You know, gyrating his hips? <laughs> this was... This was sacrilegious. This was like one of the biggest problems in the entire United <laughs> States of America. Now, pick up your phone and look at the fitness models on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, look at what's on Facebook. Look what's in the TV shows. Look what's in the plays, the operas, the movies, the whatever. Yeah. Well, because listen, we, we, have, we have way bigger fish to fry than that. I, I guess... That was a simpler time. They had less problems. We have way big problems and yeah. uh, we have uh, people don't get along. We, we just, we have division. We, we have issues. I mean, we got a lot of things that we got to work out as, uh, as a culture. And I think a lot of what you're saying uh, goes a long way to protecting the planet and maybe people getting along. Maybe if they share more assets and they share more things, uh, maybe people will get along better. But listen, this has been a really awesome conversation talking about uh, the way technologies are evolving channel conflict, how they're going to uh, impact our businesses, our lives. Uh, Randy, we'll put your contact information, whatever you want to release in the show notes. But thank you very much for sharing. Your, your ideas are so forward thinking. They're so brilliant. And, and you're just such a, an awesome guy. Personally, thank you for being my friend and uh, really glad to have you here today. I'm glad we had this conversation. I, I do hope people will, for those who haven't, make sure to read my book, Mad Genius. Uh, I wrote it, I think, in 2017, 2016, and in there, that's where I was predicting the advent of Uber and Lyft and Brexit and uh, cloning and uh, CRISPR technology and stuff and cryptocurrencies and 
even uh, that was even in the risky book. I was doing brisket and brisk Brexit and cryptocurrencies. And, you know, people thought I was crazy at that time. Now I look back at those two books and I say, man, I called that. I called that. I called that. So you're, called you're that. a little smarter than you thought. Well, because what people don't understand, I'm not a futurist, right? We both know Dan Burris. He's a futurist, yeah, right? Yeah. He does that for a living. But what any futurist will tell you is that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. That's true. That's yeah. true. So like right now, we look at voice and we say, well, like you and I were chatting before we went and started recording that right now the the echo devices are kind of a gimmick um, and they're cute for, you know, people can play music but right now. What are people doing? They're playing music with them and they're doing some of their groceries with them. They're doing some to do lists, but they haven't developed all the skills and the routines and stuff like that. But the truth is there's 50 million of those devices in the United States right now. Okay. So the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And the fact is, in even two years from now, three years from now, voice will be a really powerful dynamic. Um, like, I, you know, I have a podcast I put out. It's called the Power of Prosperity Podcast. And I track every download where it is. And I'm just, I'm watching those, the Google Home and the Echo devices and the whatever. And I just see the number of downloads, you know, creeping up every yeah. month. They're a little higher than they were the month before. Um, and that's that we know that's a hard trend that's going to continue. And when you look at that kind of thing, is it a hard trend or is it a soft trend? Is it a linear trend or is it a cyclical trend? It's actually pretty easy to predict the future because it's already mapped out for you. Well, listen, so there you have it. The future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Randy, thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thanks, Joel. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Strategies to give your business the inside track. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.